0: Special thanks to our newest sponsor,
1: Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188 and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thial Boost, which is a liquid thial precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code Ninja 21
2: Often say, Boy, these warts from the wheat malts really taste uh, nice and clean. They go, Yeah, uh, they don't have husk. For thousands of years, we've done everything we can to avoid the husk of grain. The husk tastes terrible, and humans just don't like that flavor. You know, if anybody's interested in making cleaner, better beer, we should be telling our uh, malt suppliers and our maltsters that we are interested.
1: This week on the show, advances in Hullis malting barley varieties and why you should care about the heart
2: of barley. Good day, uh, it's Keith Armstrong, and I'm the master brewer at Great Western Brewing Company in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada.
1: Keith, when you last joined me on the show about three years ago, you pointed out that beer consumption per capita in the U.S. had been on a steady decline since 1980. Has that trend remained steady since then? And is there anything new you'd like to add on that topic?
2: well uh, that's a great question, John. As far as I can tell, any information i've seen uh, says it's a pretty continuing steady decline, and uh, I think that uh, if there's anything new since a couple of years ago it's been the you know continuing movement of maybe some of the younger emerging drinkers uh, towards non beer beverages of the um, You know, not just whatever seltzer is emerging into, evolving into right now, but also, uh, you know, ready to uh, uh, drink alcoholic beverages of all sorts of flavors and sweetness.
1: Liquor in a can. I went to the, I was at the hop grower uh, convention not too long ago and they said, hey, we got to stop saying RTD and call it what it is. It's liquor in a can. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's a great way to go at it. I I, uh, I love inventing new ways of throwing it back because uh, um, you know beer needs to be respected more for sure.
1: I want to start off with a claim from your recent District Ontario presentation that like the decline in beer consumption is not new, but perhaps something we should all pay more attention to. Quote, astringency of grain husks is less acceptable for 21st century consumers, end quote. Talk about that.
2: Well, the, the, yeah, that astringency aspect and how the younger uh, 20, uh, and the 21st century consumer is looking at things is, I think we've lost a lot of connection with stuff. I mean, um, food has been often more refined than ever. And so they're not used to uh, experiencing certain flavors of husk that, uh, more experienced uh, beer drinkers may find acceptable, even if they don't think it's great. And so we have to be more careful and cautious of that sort of thing. I think there's a couple of things about the the astringency that's really noticeable is is that you know uh, people have had another twenty years, the past twenty years of really sweet, really intense flavors and things like this, and a lot of those things can cover up uh, uh, flavors such as that kind of husk astringency and that graininess. And I also think that, you know, I mean, if you turn the clock back uh, uh, 30 years, 25 years, even, uh, there's a lot of smoking in homes and in bars and all sorts of things like that. And when you've got, Smoke covering up things, you know, you don't notice things. So I think there's a whole uh, number of factors here around why people are noticing the the grain is more and being turned off by it.
1: But there's nothing new about people avoiding husks, right?
2: <laughs> yes, that, that's a, you know, definitely a situation where for thousands of years we've done everything we can to avoid the husk of grain, and uh, you know. It's, it's kind of entertaining today in the food industry. You know, some of the hull-covered the grains are being seen as kind of nouveau and great for you. So the einkorn and emmer and spelt-type wheats and things like this. But nobody eats them with the husk on. The husk tastes terrible and humans just don't like that flavor of husk. And there's there's archaeological sites that go back, you know, 23,000 years ago that have very sophisticated ways of, uh, of hitting these hull-covered uh, um, grains and knocking the husk off because we don't want to eat that.
1: The hop growers should be glad to hear your hypothesis related to consumer dislike. Tell us about your theory.
2: We humans and how we use language around food is a really difficult thing. And as I understand it, sensory science, um, our brains are not connected between our sense of taste and smell and, and our creating words and language. And so it makes it really hard for us, we, we envision a flavor and a smell and a taste And it usually comes up as a picture for us. And then to try and convert that picture into a word that somebody else uses for the same experience is really, really difficult. And so when we're talking about the consumer that's concerned about a flavor, they often reach for something, you know, kind of a nebulous word like bitter. And of course, in the brewing industry, as soon as anybody's uh, got the word bitter thrown to them, it's immediately about hot bitter. That must be what it is. That's the first thing they jump to. And I think that's been a problem for decades where a lot of consumer research and a lot of questioning hasn't dug deep enough at the root cause about what the consumer actually means by that word bitter. And it can mean a hundred different things for a consumer. But if you dig at it long enough, the consumers so often tell you that it's a lingering husky grainy note not the nice clean bitterness of hops
1: you mentioned earlier that the um that beverages have become sweeter and sweeter uh, it sounds like you think that we've been essentially you know chasing the wrong thing and and dialing down uh the wrong variable basically is that right
2: yeah I think that that is really true that over the decades um we've often been dialing back hops, not thinking about the overall drinkability uh factor and so when it talk when you talk about what goes on in the sensory situation in what I'd call the uh, uh, fifteen to forty five seconds after you swallow, you know a hop bitterness can be very clean and very refreshing without overpowering the husk graininess instead of uh, being moderated, becomes more noticeable in that time period and, you know, something that you really just don't like. And so we brewers for decades, for hundreds of years, we've done all sorts of uh, focus areas and tricks in, of the trying to uh, control and minimize that unpleasant husk note. And we, you know, Hollis is just one more way to do that.
1: Keith, talk about the Japanese emphasis on clean beer flavors and how that all fits in here.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the Japanese situation goes back in many ways. They fought the same battle because if you go back a century, they were having trouble trying to dehusk and polish rice to make a really good sake so they know of this struggle you know it's kind of built into their focus a little bit more than the beer drinkers and brewers of north america and so the japanese certainly spend a lot of time focused on really trying to uh diminish that flavor and make a good clean beer that that keeps on tasting great and one example is kieran's uh Ichiban. Now, this is a situation where they just take the first pressings and they don't do any sparging, and that's one way to attack it so that you don't leach the unpleasantness out of the husk character. The Japanese have done a lot of research over time in many aspects of brewing, including on the flavors and the characteristics that are important for drinkability. And one of the things that intrigues me, and I'm sorry if I say this wrong, uh, but the word seems to be spelled in English K-I-R-E, so it's kind of a Kiri, uh, uh, th- and it talks about a combination of Christmas and smoothness combined together. And I think, you know, North American brewers might often think of those two things as Christmas and smoothness kind of are, are different territories, but It's again, so much about beer is a requirement of balance to make nice drinkability. So it it needs to be smooth, but it needs to be crisp. It needs to be both those things. And um, that's something where they've combined together. And I think when we talk about, we've often talked about a nice, clean bitterness, um, a cleansing ale, and that cleansing aftertaste and things like that. And when things are right in a beer, I think that flows through very well. But when what emerges after you've swallowed the beer is this husky grainy linger that kind of builds after the swallow that's an unpleasant thing and it's probably unpleasant for everybody but you know a lot of a lot of uh, things we get used to (laughs) and we kind of accept even if it's not our favorite thing and that that's i think one of the territories with the younger and emerging drinkers where they're not willing to put up with that sort of thing they're asking for cleaner aftertaste and I, I love uh, the flavor of barley and malt. And, and, you know, I think we should pay attention to this and see uh, that we do everything possible we can to bring all the pleasant flavors out and all those keeps on tasting great flavors out. And that means avoiding some of the uh, negatives. And, you know, I think definitely the, the, the husk, grassy, grainy um, character is, is unpleasant.
1: So, Keith, it sounds like you think that perhaps uh, us longtime beer drinkers are simply conditioned to accept some of these negative flavors from the barley husk that the, the newer generation is, is not conditioned to and not you know, willing to put up with.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting that most brewers actually acknowledge this in, in a weird way uh, in that they certainly don't go out of their way to grab a, a handful of husk. And chew on it and they often don't go and uh, drink a, a, a glass full of their last runnings and see uh, how husky that is so they kind of know it's there and they avoid that unpleasantness and think it it would just go away and you know the best made beers really minimize it but you know there's no end to um Uh, being able to improve that. And that's a territory, I think, where Hollis may emerge to be part of the answer for us to do that. Um, You know, historically, over the past many centuries all around the world, all sorts of adjuncts have been used. And often the reason those adjuncts are brought in has been an underlying way of looking at how do we reduce that husky grainy lingering aftertaste. So instead of bringing the heart of the barley out and, and the wonderful flavors of malt out, you're kind of reducing some of that in an effort to avoid this off character of, of the husk linger in, in, uh, that often shows up in beers.
1: If nobody likes the taste of husk, it's not surprising that brewers can already find lots of dehusked or hulless options on the market, mostly for specialty malts. But we're starting to see some dehusked base malts as well now, right?
2: Yeah, I think I think the aspect of uh, either hulless or dehusked uh, uh, pale malts, base malts, is, is really intriguing. And so, you know, the maltster's in many ways, in many places around the world, are already reacting to this. So it even goes back into the malt mill operators that say, "Okay, here's a mill. um You can you can separate out a good portion of the husk this way, and uh, reduce some of that characteristic." And you know, even on their um, uh, promotional things for malt mills, they talk about improved beer taste and longer shelf life. So they've got a clear focus on it, and we've got other uh, brewers that are. That are doing that and packaging up the malt, uh, you know, as you know, um, we remove the majority of husk and they eliminates the bitter astringent flavors common with base malts. So this recognition is out there in the industry. And you know, one of the, my experiences is also like, you know, uh, some of you might have been in, in malt houses when they're they're doing their testing of the malts and things like that. And one of the things, of course, they do is they 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 taste the uh, the mashes as well and, and assess them. And they'll often say, "Boy, these these uh, these warts from the wheat malts really taste uh, nice and clean." And you go, "Yeah, uh, they don't have husk." Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so it's something we know we've been trying to avoid. What other tools can we uh, add uh, to our arsenal to uh, combat this?
1: Keith, explain why you think Hullis barley can be our differentiating quality message to consumers.
2: Well, um, you know, there's been wonders of, of different things, bread. Uh, over over the uh, decades and you know I often think of of the one where we've we've tried to reduce and control the uh, lipoxidase enzyme because it's a, a factor in how beer stale and it's wonderful stuff that can produce uh, malts that that help uh, beers stay fresh longer and and uh, more exciting for our customers but you know it's really hard to uh, look a customer in the eye or give them a message, uh, uh, you know, electronically or, or however, about this beer is made from barley with less Lepoxygenase. And you go like, <laughs> that doesn't connect. <laughs> and right. Whereas if we can talk about Naked Barley uh Hollis barley the heart of the of the uh malt we can talk about you know uh Hollis barley's have been around for 10,000 years it has heritage and tradition and it also is something that produce helps us produce beers with nice clean flavor and and uh we know that there's there's archaeological anthropological um uh Records that people have brought forward that suggest that you know uh, the Scandinavians, the Vikings, the the Irish, uh, oh, there was a lot of use of hulled uh, barley for malting and brewing over the centuries, and they were seen as contributing to making a superior quality beer. So there's there's lots of these things that bring us together um, to recognize this is not just something invented last week, and uh, you know it's it's not a sales pitch.
1: You just mentioned tradition. There was a slide in your presentation with a picture of a traditional barley harvest, which you witnessed as a kid on your grandfather's farm. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, well, you know, the idea of combining is, is actually pretty new. So, I mean, um, you know, originally we would swath the grain in the field and then we'd, we'd stack it up tie it with with actually you know a barley was much taller than too, <laughs> which had all the problems of being you know knocked down by the wind and hail and stuff like that but you'd you'd tie the stooks together with with the uh the straw and um and because they're standing up like that the grain gets to dry much better than if they're lying down right so stooking them up uh is uh, bring them together it's a lot of work but it gets them dry and dries off that last little bit then you go around the field with your horse and wagon and you'd be forking these stooks up onto the wagon and piling them all up there and um you know if you had well-trained horses it's like the old uh, pictures that are shown more of the milk wagons where nobody drives the milk wagon the (laughs) the milkman just talks the horses along down the street as he delivers the milk and that's how my grandfather did it and i, I was amazed as, as a child with these monstrous big horses and nobody's driving them they're just kind of walking along as partners through the field and then the stooks would come into the barn and the, the 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 uh uh threshing machine to to knock the the kernels off off the stalks and everything would be back by the barn and every everything would be handled there um you know so Obviously it's pretty cool seeing these modern um, um, gps computer driven combines and everything else on farms nowadays there's certainly uh you know a lot of efficiencies in agronomics and things like that when we do things modern but but yeah it's pretty neat some of the old stuff and you know on on a side uh angle here <laughs> um in in Hollis uh, is one of its real centers uh, over the past 10,000 years is up in the Himalayas and um so this goes back into for me into the uh, late 1990s in New Zealand where some uh people from Bhutan up in the Himalayas came by and they are interested in learning more about brewing and and um they were interested in starting a brewery in Bhutan that makes more modern international beers but they they said at that point in time like you know we have holistic barley and we make it like more like sake, where we steam the barley and we infect it with the uh, the 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 fungus yeast combination to make our alcohol that way. And you know, it's probably very much like um, what sake must have tasted like, say, 200 years ago or whatever in Japan before they started, uh, you know, uh, becoming uh, more um, equipment-wise, more more capable of of uh dehusking and polishing and and purling uh the rice uh so nowadays even from say 1920 till now you know sake has gone from like you know super uh, premium stuff was probably uh um polished down to about an 80 percent weight 100 years ago and now super premium stuff is less than 50%, but some of them go down to like 20%. So they're throwing away almost all the grain. So the marketing message can be that, uh, oh, yes, we pearl it down to 20%, and this makes you know the best of the best of the best of the best, sir. <laughs> Coming up. But these two ones coming forward right now are not just a step forward, they're a bit of a leap forward in, in the quality that's going to support the malsters and the brewers. and that's, uh, that's really exciting stuff.
1: I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support.
0: Sponsored by CanCraft. Stressed about packaging and can supply? Don't worry, CanCraft's team of design and aluminum specialists are here to make things easy by supporting you every step of the way. From aluminum cans to lids to PackTech can carriers to design help, CanCraft can provide you with a full-service packaging experience from design to delivery. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com CanCraft to get started.
2: Get to know Proximity Malt.
0: Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today.
1: Shout out to Continental, a global supplier of brewery hoses. Their extreme flex beverage transfer hose features pretzel-like flexibility for those tight bend connections. Raise a glass to its easy clean cover with a finish almost as smooth as your beer. Click the link in the show notes to find a distributor near you. I really hope you listen to what I'm about to say because I'm spending my own money to say it. Most listeners think this podcast is my full-time job, but I actually spend most of my waking hours improving the Lupulin Exchange, which I launched in 2014. I hope that like this show, the exchange has been helpful to you. Would you do me a favor? Buy your next box of hops on the Lupulin Exchange and let me know how I can make the experience even better. I answer every support ticket personally, and I'd love to hear from you. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis is holding a yeast symposium, April 20th. District Northwest meets in beautiful Hood River, April 21st and 22nd. District New York is holding a shop talk at the Torch and Crown Brewing in New York City. District Southeast is holding its annual crawfish boil at Tampa Bay Brewing in Tampa, April 22nd. The District Carolina Spring Social is April 29th at Beer Study Durham. District Georgia presents an evening with Halfway Crooks and Dingaman's Malt May 2nd in Atlanta. The Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins June 9th. District Michigan's Summer Social is July 8th at Fitzgerald Park and Grand Ledge. Master Brewers has teamed up with ASBC to put on a two-day Raw Materials Symposium August 3rd and 4th in Bloomington, Minnesota. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you.
0: Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to MBAA.com and use code BEER2023 when you join.
1: Back to the
2: show. You know, we could probably come back and just touch on, you know, one of my uh, first points about, um, you know, the things we look for are, are the consumer noticeable quality that they can identify in a product, but they also look for a differentiating quality message. And I think I think that's really important for us because we realize that when consumers um, are are drinking beer, they're a lot, a lot of times socializing and they may not be paying very close attention to actually critiquing the quality of their beer. Um, so You know, any differentiating quality message that can pull them to your premium beer from somebody else's premium beer uh, is going to be a, a, a good thing. So a differentiating quality message is not just good for individual brewers, but I think when we go back and we look at the decline of per capita consumption, I think it's also a question of drawing our consumers back to beer, to respecting beer to being, uh, you know, more aware and respectful for barley and all those sort of things that lift the image of beer. Because there's been too many bad things uh, said by people in in some snide manner over the past, you know, 50 years. And, uh, you know, most of them are really we found it completely fabricated, but it's it's really good that uh, we have an opportunity to to uh, speak about barley, speak with our consumers, and make them more comfortable with the food. And let's face it, you know, I, I you know, uh, one of the, one of the people in in you know, Winnipeg in Canada that deals with barley all the time, as she says, "Look, you know, if every time people." in North America, ate rice, if they threw out half the rice and made it half barley and half rice, the health of the entire continent would improve overnight. And, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in there. So, how do we get people to respect that connection between the field and the the barley and the malt and the beer and quality and appreciate that? And uh, I think that can only help us sell more beer and help the whole guild of brewers uh, all around. About a week ago, you posted
1: an update to the Master Brewers community site regarding some new Hullis barley varieties. Let's hear about what's new and what improvements we might be able to look forward to when compared to the best Hullis options that are currently available
2: yeah so so I mean uh, we know that there there's continuing effort to breed better uh, malts better barleys for for malting, and that focus has almost always been on regular hull covered type of barley now the interesting thing is um, you know as we brought um barley and beer and brewing to north america we're in a situation where just like every other move from one area of the world to another area of the world it can be very challenging and very difficult in those sort of situations to get a barley that grows well for the farmers and if it doesn't grow well for the farmers um it's not going to be great quality for the maltsters and therefore it's going to flow through as a challenge for beer and for brewing and so there's lots of things um you know that are are historically written about this over the last 400 years um the fact that we haven't done so much breeding with Hollis barwies um means that there's a lot of catching up to do but the fantastic thing is the 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 barley breeders have done a lot of work over the last uh, say 75 years on this and the difficulty is getting it taken up, and sometimes the difficulty is that um like holus exists in in kind of two ends of the spectrum: one is super high beta glucans that are uh really good for the food industry, and these are great things to eat, and they're great things for using uh you know as additions into uh, uh Uh, breads and different things like that to provide soluble fiber keep us healthy and alive it's it's great stuff but they don't make great malt for brewing on the other side of the spectrum is is malts that you barbers you like to go to malt and to brewing. But if the farmer's growing them, their focus may not be 100% on providing all the qualities you want for the maltster so it can make great beer. So a lot of times we just, we, we're not reaching enough volume to get everybody involved in this from the farmers to the maltsters to the brewers to make uh, really good beers out of really great uh, barley. But uh, recently, about you know, ten to fifteen years ago, the variety Clear uh, came to the market, and it is fairly widely used and grown, um, but not in anywhere near the volume you you need for uh, to be able to call it mainstream. So, Clear uh, can be uh, can make good malt, and there's a lot of people that are brewed with Clear in various ways, even just for, as you mentioned uh, about specialty malts. Uh, so. It's a good product, it has uh, decent agronomics, good disease resistance, it grows well, um, but it doesn't have all the uh, quality aspects that we really like an optimal barley to take forward to make a great malt and brew great beer. So there's some areas that uh, can be improved upon. And this is the work that's just come to the fore over the last couple of years. And uh, the there's two varieties that were put forward for registration in Canada just uh, at the 2nd of March so just uh, days ago and these two varieties have continued to show good agronomics for the farmer good disease res- resistance and so they're going to be able to uh, make some great barwees that can get to the malsters in great shape but the the really exciting news about it is that they've got You know, great extract and all those sort of things, but they've got quite low uh, beta-glucan, lower viscosity, and they're showing a lot of those kind of characteristics that just make them that much more exciting uh, uh, to consider malting and brewing with. And uh, so the, the, the future is about to come on us. Of course, it's, it's not already right now. Once you register it, you have to grow seed so you can plant crops and grow, <laughs> and grow good harvests so you can move on to really malting in, in, in bulk. But over this coming couple of years, it's a territory that, you know, if anybody's interested in making cleaner, better beer, we should be telling our uh, malt suppliers and our maltsters that we are interested
1: can you share the names of those two varieties with us
2: <laughs> yes hb20351 and hb21355 <laughs> they don't right. have names yet <laughs> all right
1: so they got a way to go before they get names but um,
2: once um they get names. i'm sure that that will be picked up with the um with the uh, the growers, the breeders, uh, the the seed companies, and the maltsters, in the coming probably uh, weeks, more than months, and uh, we'll have some names to deal with, but not so far. <laughs> okay,
1: fair enough. All right, um, Keith, what will it take for Hullis barley malts to become more mainstream?
2: Well, I think that's a uh, getting getting wholeness barley malts to be mainstream is a really interesting thing because one of the things that's often turned brewers off is they look at some analyses and they compare them to the analysis from a whole covered uh, barley malt. And so, for instance, there's there's I've seen numbers for the weight of husk involved uh, everywhere from about ten percent to about fifteen percent. So I, I typically say the 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 husk is about ten to uh, eleven to twelve percent in that range. And so when you talk about a protein that's thirteen percent, you say, oh, that's pretty high. I'm going to have a few challenges here. But when you realize if you take eleven percent off that thirteen, you you know you're down to about uh, 11.5% protein. So we have to get our heads wrapped around how we we deal with this. And this goes all the way through the process. You know, when we talk about farmers and people talk about bushels per acre and stuff like that, well, uh, a husk covered grain takes up a lot more space. And we're probably more used to seeing this because, uh, you know, if you just compare wheat and barley, it goes from, you know, about 38 Uh, pounds per bushel to 48 49 pounds per bushel so that you know you can see that there's this uh, close to 30 percent difference uh, just because when you get rid of that winter coat that the husk is (laughs) and get down to the heart of the grain that the hollis is um, it takes up a lot less space so you know you have to kind of think about how much weight of real Uh, extract and, and the heart of the barley comes off an acre, you know, and so the prices look a little bit different um, because there's, there's, less of what you don't want there <laughs> and more of what you do want. Uh, so there's a lot of that sort of stuff that goes on. And of course, you know, the average brewer is probably worried about his runoffs and how how things will affect his runoffs. And so these newest varieties with uh, lower viscosity and lower beta-glucan and uh, the, the potential for just better, more homogeneous modification of the barley uh, into malt, these sort of things create a situation where you know almost every brewer has brewed with some wheat, and often using wheat in the range of 35% inclusion, and they find uh, okay wheat with a viscosity a really high viscosity of like 175 or whatever can slow your runoff down a little bit versus a whole barley that has a viscosity of maybe 145. Um, but these new wholeus uh, varieties. Uh, that are going are to be close, uh, much closer to standard barley than to uh, wheat. And I think they're going to show, uh, as we get used to to malting them and brewing with them, they're going to show good laudering, good runoff and nice, clean, timely uh, uh, runoff uh, of the water tonne. So there's some of those things that we have to uh, get our heads around, um, you know, how we're measuring it. You know, we're measuring it with a, basically a different ruler.
1: So you envision a future then when
2: uh
1: it, it might be pretty easy for a brewer to replace, I don't know what, you know, thirty, forty, fifty percent of the of the malt bill with uh Hullis barley without encountering any of these uh negative uh, effects in, in lottery and things like that.
2: Yeah, to me the the exciting part is that um with inclusion in that range of 35 to 50%, we're probably going to see very little uh, difference in a runoff time. And, uh, you know, we'll be able to uh, see the the extract values uh, come through to help us, you know, and there's a lot of positivity around that aspect of of what can happen. You know, there's no end to uh, how we're going to be able to Look to support the breeders to make maybe even better barley. But but these two ones coming forward right now are not just a step forward; they're a bit of a leap forward in in the quality that's going to support the malsters and the brewers. And that's uh, that's really exciting stuff. Cool. And um,
1: it sounds like I gather from your presentation that Scotch whiskey researchers have already had a decent amount of experience filtering. Hullis barley mashes, and um, have sort of gleaned some uh, some unexpected insights from that as well
2: yeah I, th- I think it is very interesting that there's been s- there's been this underlying degree of interest in Hullis barley for a long time, and some of it's obviously with the breeders and some of it's with the farmers but it's not just the brewing industry or the or the uh, human food industry or, or things like that. Uh, people like the the Scotch whiskey distillers have done research. They've published papers. They're investigating similar things. And you know, when when you pack this all together, you see that that um, you know there is this potential for us to really grow Holus into that critical mass that supports. Uh, the option for us in the future it's not some completely tiny little niche market into the future the the potential is certainly for it to be widely used in brewing in in distilling in a wide range of things
1: do you want to talk about the sustainability components of hellas barley
2: yeah i mean when it when it comes to sustainability, whatever your background and opinion is, I think everybody in the world can agree that we shouldn't needlessly waste resources. And uh, you know, I, I joke about it that you know, maybe it's not a joke either. That you know, when we lived in a cave and we had a, a rock and a and a big log and we wanted to make a fire, things were tough. You know we've always dealt with these sort of things, and we shouldn't be wasting resources. Um, the great thing about HOAs is that there's a whole range of areas here where it's probably going to help us. So I mean, even just starting in the field, because when the when the farmer is combining that field and that husk is going to blow off like it's wheat, it also means that his combine is going to hold more weight of. The heart of of the barley, and when he uh, uh, transfers the combine into his, his transfer truck it's going to carry a bigger load. And so the transportation all the way through the system is going to be more efficient because we may be carrying, you know, 30% more weight on the truck. You know, barley is pretty light stuff. And if you ever, you know, you only have to uh, uh, pick up other things in the world, like, a, you know, a box of hop pellets or something like that. You know, it's it's not compact. So we, we fill a truck full of volume of, of malt. We don't fill it up with weight of malt, so you know we can put more weight on that same truck and make a uh, significantly fewer trips in a year. So whether that's from the farm to the uh, malt house, whether it's from the malt house to the brewery, uh, there's a lot of those sort of things. Um, energy uh, is going to be uh, something that. We don't know how much more energy until we really make a lot of this stuff. We don't know how much less water till we make a, a lot of this stuff. Um, but we know that directionally, we're going to be using less energy for handling it, for drying it. Um, we're going to be using less water for for washing it, for steeping it, uh, um, uh, for mashing it. Uh, there's there's all these sort of sustainability factors that are going to come to the fore, and it's really hard right now to put. A stake in the ground and say it's um, you know 13.5 percent better energy or something like that if we don't have that degree of precision until we do a lot more of this and so it's one of the opportunities we have in supporting uh, Hollis Barley into gaining this kind of critical mass of production that'll really uh, help us pin this down but directionally it's going to be much better uh, all around so how should brewers? who are excited about
1: what they're hearing from you, how do they go about supporting Hollis barley?
2: We're in a situation right now in 2023, we're seeing new varieties coming uh, uh, through the system. It's going to take a couple of years for them to get to the stage where there's even some Hollis barley malts available in bulk en masse. Probably going to be three or four years before we really gain, you know, experience to make this, a full mainstream availability, uh, for, for, uh, people all across the land. Um, but how do we support that happening? And I think one of the key supports is that people really need to to step up and say, yeah, I'm interested in this. I'm curious about this. And, you know, uh, speak to people because, you know, the maltsters are going to be, you know, nervous. Well, just, you know how how strongly should we support this, and and um, so it's all the way back from from the brewers to the maltsters to the to the seed companies, uh, distributing the seed to the farmers growing it. We we need to put our desires out there and make sure everybody knows we're we're interested, in, and and uh, that's going to be the differentiator of, of making sure this really progresses in the next three four years. Do you, Keith? Do you think the, um, what do you think the excitement level
1: is uh, at the malster level? Because I I would have to assume that uh, if 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 you could provide them with a you know higher quality Hollis barley, which it sounds like is you know becoming more realistic, that they'd have to be more excited about using that than uh than going through the process of dehusking uh you know uh, a, a covered barley, right? I mean that's that's got to be something that they'd be happy to do.
2: Yeah that, that's a great uh, aspect there John as well because you know um it's it's always quite a job trying to uh dehus something and it's even more of a job trying to dehus something that is uh, fragile and friable like uh like malt ends up so i think that um especially i guess <clears throat> um like i know that there's there's interest and curiosity about hoas uh for mainstream pale uh base malts right now and i know that that covers uh right now there's people watching and and curious from europe to to asia uh on across north america but there's another territory there that i think is already fairly active and that's in the specialty malts and i think that's a territory where most of us Brewers appreciate that you know when you're using a lot of uh, specialty highly colored malts and you're you're moving up to uh, uh, 20 30 uh, percent specialty malt inclusions a range of different specialty malts the husk just falls apart it just shatters from the torture it's gone through in that uh, either high temperature kilning or a roasting experience and we put that into the uh, lauderton if we talk about bad runoffs we probably have worse runoffs with a a lot of the uh Highly colored malts than we do with uh, wheat, for example. Uh, so, it, you know, strangely enough, <laughs> against so much of our dogma of, of our religion of brewing is that we should uh, do everything we can to keep the husk in good shape. The fact of the matter is, with these highly colored malts, uh, the husk is already in terrible shape and it, it's a detriment to us. And it often ends up uh, as a flavor problem. And so I think, uh, you know, supporting People who make really good uh, uh, specialty malts is is a really key thing in talking with your maltsters and things. But but I think uh, um, for the maltsters to be able to get some really superb quality pale barley to make their specialty malts, that's going to be a real innovation for us in the future. And one of my prejudices is I'm I'm astounded at the lack of uh, of beers of any color uh, in so many. Craft brewers and brew pubs uh, uh, across the land, you know, there's there's some I've been in that have zero, Um, and this running away from specialty malts that's happened over the last five years in particular. You know, the pale ales are paler, the IPAs are paler, et cetera, et cetera. We um, maybe we've got a real revolution uh, for ourselves three four years out when we have some really uh, superb quality specialty malts that help us make cleaner. Uh, better tasting you know, really keeps on tasting great type of beers with color again. Maybe we can draw a lot more people back into beer with uh, superbly clean uh, beers of color in in the years to come. <laughs>
1: That was Keith Armstrong here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for links, including Keith's District Ontario presentation, where among plenty else, you can see a photo of traditional barley stooks. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.